0: last verse, do thy friends despise for th- forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. There's more and more of that kind of division among friendships taking place now over differing ideologies that are guiding us. So we'll be talking a little bit about that this morning, but Philippians chapter 1, I invite you to turn with me there. Philippians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 11, which brings to a close this opening section of the letter, it's really his prayer proper for the saints in Philippi. But one of the things that I uh, came, acro- came across last night uh, was disturbing and troubling, and I thought it was a good way to introduce this topic. We're finding the, the bitter fruit of the woke left beginning to hit a little closer home a good friend of mine, fellow pastor in the URC, was slandered yesterday by someone who took a private message that he sent to him in which he was quoting from another article, and he referenced the article in the message he sent to this individual. And uh, and that person proceeded. This was sent back in 2017, by the way, after the Charlottesville riot. And that individual then posted on Twitter publicly um, as if it was a quote from my friend um, basically condemning uh, the way certain people were reacting Um, and so he made no reference to uh, the fact that this was a quote from someone else he made no reference to the fact that it was sent to him four years ago Um, and and of course the comments proceed to to just mock and blast the in you know Basically the the racism of my friend and um, the message it's it's you know, they, like what I what I find most concerning it's not it's not surprising it's, it's nothing is shocking anymore but it what's most concerning is that more and more Christians are taking their strategies for cultural engagement from the wicked ideologies such as critical race theory or evil organizations such as Black Lives Matter. They're using the same tactics in order to silence their opposition, silence those who disagree with them. And so we need to be prepared for that. Need to prepare for slander. Prepare for the requirement to make corrections uh, to that slanderous language about you um, to clarify the authority upon which we stand Right, the church is going to need to support one another if we're going to survive the woke attacks that are coming. And we think of them as being distant, maybe. We're still safeguarded, but this is proving that it's, the greatest threat is probably not from protesters from Black Lives Matter standing outside of our church, but probably from those sympathizers within the church would stand up and oppose you and try to dox and cancel you publicly. So Paul prays that the church would possess an orthopraxy, a practice of their faith that is grounded in orthodoxy, It is grounded in a right knowledge, a right theology. He prays that their love would be discerning, their values would be moral. Their fruit would be righteous. But remember who he's writing to. Right? These are Philippians who have been generous in expressing their love and support. His prayer is not coming from a place of correcting them, as if they've done some wrong to him. No, he's warning them. Right? He's, he's praying for them, recognizing the tendency that the church has to cower. Or to be surrounded at all times by antagonists, from outside and from within. And so if we lack discernment, our compassion may in fact lead to further harm. Many Christians led by confused pastors are heading their church straight for a cliff. Paul prays for the Philippians in this way because he knows the human tendency to behave in ways that are inconsistent with our beliefs. And so really, I'd say there are, are two ways to bear bitter fruit. Right? One is to have your behavior rooted in wicked worldviews, wicked ideologies, that are guiding and giving you the strategy with which you operate. Secondly, though, your behavior can be inconsistent with your Christian worldview. So you know what the truth is, but you're behaving in ways that is inconsistent with that truth. And even our best deeds— are tainted by various impurities. So we can all succumb to these same temptations. Paul shows us how to engage the culture in a way that honors God. But this is the ideal. This is the goal of the Christian community. Unfortunately, it follows a pattern that the culture characterizes as ineffective and insufficient, and therefore worthy of chastisement. And so we can either bear fruit that honors an immutable God, or we can bear fruit that temporarily satisfies a fickle culture that will turn on you in a second. Are you trying to please God or man? And I think our primary goal must be to glorify God through the faithful practice of our gospel mission, to faithfully proclaim the truth in the face of opposition. And so let us ask that the Lord would do that work through us even now before we read this passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder that as Paul prays for the Philippians, he really is praying for us. He's praying for the church universal, recognizing that in every age we will face similar persecutions and trials and temptations from without and from within. And we need to be, be aware of these temptations. We need to be on guard against false accusations and slander. And Lord, we need to trust that you and your justice will be done in your timing. To stand upon that. And to not try to please everyone who we interact with. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us. Cause us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we interact with others to be recognizing that even in private messages and text messages that that it's it, it could all be public at any point and to be careful But in every conversation we have, whether private or public, that we would have it with integrity to speak the truth in love. Not to destroy our opponents, but to correct them, to point them to the truth. Lord, this is really Paul's prayer for us in this passage. I pray that you would help it to be our prayer for ourselves and for one another. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, looking at verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God amen this is God's holy word if you're following along in the outline our first uh, point is that we are to abound in discerning love abound in discerning love verse 9 Paul opens with a he opened the letter with this friendly greeting followed by an expression of his gratitude for the saints in Philippi these were dear brothers and sisters and so the central verse in that opening was verse 6, right? He began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And it provides that statement of confidence that grounds his thanksgiving for the church. He says it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. He loves them. He has taken them with him even as he's been apart from them physically. And so, interestingly, Paul's confidence in his love for the saints, in the work that God is doing in and through them, the support that he has received from them uh, physically and spiritually, that confidence doesn't relax his approach to their ongoing growth. It's not as if he says, well, I know God is doing a work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. And so I'm not worried about you. I'm going to talk about everyone else, or I'm going to talk about whatever... (laughs) Right? He, he, he is praying for them he says that your love may abound more and more that you would not let up that my commendation of you would only spur you on it would motivate you further right? that you would press on this is the these this is the language we'll see throughout this letter it's encouraging encouraging them to persevere even as they have the confidence that god preserves them god will preserve them He's continuing to tell them to persevere through the various trials that they will face if they weren't already facing them. And so his hope is that it would increase their momentum in their conduct. that They would more and more become the kind of saints that would glorify God and that would spur on the saints to love and good deeds. Now this word here, he he, he encourages them with this is, is love, right? It's the foundation of his prayer here that your love may abound more and more love here doesn't have an object normally it's referencing to our love for God or our love for one another in fact most of Paul's letters open with a a statement of his love for those he's writing to Uh, but because it doesn't have a direct object here the idea is, is most likely in his mind is that he's encouraging them to increase and abound in their love for God and for one another To have a comprehensive love for God and neighbor. And so as we seek to grow in love for God and neighbor, we want it to be joined with knowledge and discernment. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Chrysostom and Aquinas speak of an impulsive love that will not stand the test of time. An infatuation, really. Knowledge here in this verse is always found in reference to a spiritual understanding. At least when it's found in the New Testament. It's speaking of a spiritual knowledge. And so Harmon notes that understanding, uh, or he, he says this, knowledge is not the enemy of love for God but a necessary condition for its existence. Calvin would say the same thing, suggests that our love for God flows from a right understanding of him. And then the phrase discernment has to do with insight. It's a, it's a related term right? this, to our understanding, to our knowledge. It has to do with insight, and it's, it's actually, this is the only time you find that word in the Greek New Testament. But if you look at the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, you find it frequently, and it's especially found in Proverbs. So this is a kind of insight or a knowledge that has a practical, it's a practical wisdom that informs your actions. So it's very clear what he's saying here is, is love, in love, but I'm not talking about a shallow, uh, you know, superficial love, a gushy kind of love. It's a love that's grounded in truth grounded in knowledge and discernment. Love, knowledge, and discernment are meant to develop alongside one another. And so obviously, it is possible to grow in a love that is reckless. And that's never a good thing, contrary to Corey Asbury and Bethel Music. That's not Paul's prayer, that, that we would have a kind of reckless love he recognizes the temptation to become so focused on love that we lack discrimination or we lack discernment Uh, rob bell's book love wins is a perfect example of this kind of reckless teaching right it's a, a teaching on love that leads to compromise on so many fundamental christian doctrines uh, basically, he takes this doctrine of God's preser- uh, his preserving love that we talked about last week, verse 6, and he turns it into an argument for universalism. And God is so committed to his purposes that he won't ever let anyone, regardless of their faith, um, remain opposed to his will. It sounds triumphalistic, it sounds strong and confident, and even Partially biblical. That's the danger. And Kevin DeYoung has a 20 page critique available online if you're interested in going into deeper uh, understanding of this. DeYoung points out several flaws in Bell's theology, his history, his exegesis of Scripture, his eschatology, his Christology, his gospel, his understanding of the gospel. I mean, the whole thing is a mess. So it's apparent that Bell's teaching about love lacks knowledge. And discernment and therefore it fails to properly comprehend god's love it's an express it's, it's supposed to be expounding upon god's love but because it lacks the discernment and knowledge it completely misses god's love altogether so the antidote now is not to hate but to love others in light of the truth again john calvin comments for the greater proficiency we make in knowledge so much the more ought our love to increase The greater knowledge and understanding we have our love should increase parallel to that our love is not hateful but honest in this sense truth trumps emotion but you don't discard emotion because of that gk chesterson says love is not blind love is bound and the more it is bound the less it is blind And so we do not minimize truth in order to love. We love others by proclaiming the truth. And so this requires more than a superficial faith. We must be committed to the constant reforming, even of our own understanding, to come before God's word humbly, recognizing that we don't have it all together, that we haven't figured everything out. Leaves us with a humble submission before God. And we seek... Wisdom, then, to apply what we learn in a way that honors God, first and foremost. That it equips the saints, and that it corrects sinners. This is all part of our sanctification within the church, and part of our responsibility to proclaim the truth of judgment that is coming to those who, do, who refuse to repent. We never arrive at perfection in this present age. All right, backsliding is inevitable, but it's never permanent for the believer, lest we forget what we just read in verse 6. So love is the seed that germinates, that takes root, and then it blossoms. Love is what transformed Lydia's heart, one of the earliest saints in Philippi who became generous in hospitality as soon as she was converted. She invites the apostles into her home. The same jailer who shackled Paul's feet in Acts 16.24 later washed his wounds after he was converted by the redeeming love of Christ. Indifference and enmity in this very community transformed into loving and humbling service for the glory of God. And so Alec Mateer notes, love was their new nature in Christ. And so the first thing I wanna say is that we need to repent of any imbalance in our lives, any imbalance from these ideas of, of love, knowledge and discernment there's a correction for all of us right on the one hand there are churches that emphasize love at the expense of doctrine they say things like doctrine divides so let's stay away from that let's stay away from those kinds of controversies and just keep it light and simple on the other hand some churches emphasize doctrine at the expense of love so that theological precision is all that matters and therefore there's a lack of patience For anyone who might stumble over their words. And think about your relationships, whether it be in your marriage, your family, your church, or work. This applies there, too. Are we motivated to correct others out of love or bitterness and pride? Repentance is a saving grace. That means it's not something you can manufacture on your own. And if we're to repent of any imbalance, then we must cry out to God to do that work in our hearts. To help us to see the ways in which we've gone astray. To acknowledge them. And to ask the Lord to correct them in us. To give us a new new desire, a new endeavoring after obedience. We ask that God would grant us the gift of repentance. And so the first thing we say is that, is, is, is that we want to have a discerning love, right? to abound in discerning love. And that requires an examination in order to, what we see in this next verse, approve what is morally excellent to approve what is morally excellent our 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 love for truth here blossoms toward the goal of pure and blameless lives again that's the goal look at what it says so that so that he's praying that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that for the purpose of being able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of christ you're working toward that that goal of being pure and blameless in your lives again not reached in this life that's the end goal that christ is doing a work in you paul prays that the philippians would have no shame upon christ's return in order that For that to be true, their love must be genuine, their thinking must be discerning, their conscience must be clear. And so the first thing he says here is to examine, right? Approve actually has to do with examining something, to test its worth, its value. Don't assume anything. This, This language was often used in reference to the examination of the quality of precious metals or farm animals, right? This the possibility that you could be taken with fool's gold you could be taken with something that's false something that looks strong on the outside but it's weak and sick and so in other words this language complements the idea of discernment that paul just called for in the previous verse however the purpose of that examination is the is to result in approval that's what's emphasized here it's an agreement it has to do with appreciating what is best, to examine the options to see what is superior and then to approve what is superior, what is best. It's not about necessarily saying what's black and white and choosing the the clear, obvious answer. It's saying, let's examine things that may be good and choose what is best. So examine everything and treasure what is excellent. At the, the imbalance on both sides of the aisle is equally concerning here because we focus so heavily on the need for knowledge and discernment in our guard of love and then the examination for approval. We, we, we see those things and we say, yeah, that's right. Let's have knowledge and discernment. Let's examine things closely. But we do that. We, we focus on that so much that we neglect to abound in love. And to rejoice in what is excellent. We can become so caught up in correcting what is false that we underappreciate what is true. And that's not a criticism of doctrine, but a failure to practice reformed Catholicity. Now, that's the word that has to be redeemed today you heard me say catholicity and you said what no Reformed catholic catholicity is an appreciation for a broad and historic tradition that ought to be prioritized over relatively recent controversies within church history the magisterial reformers could sift through the writings of the early church fathers and find a thread of gold that united them all in christ and they weren't by doing so, by quoting these early church writers, they're not saying we agree with everything that they ever said. But it's emphasizing the truth that unites them. And so you've probably heard the phrase, all truth is God's truth. That gets at this same sentiment. Whether that truth comes out of the mouth of a political opponent, or from the pen of an atheist, we can acknowledge and appreciate the truth that it contains. Based upon common grace based upon natural revelation, based upon natural law, those things that we all know innately. In his commentary on Titus 1.12, where Paul quotes a Cretan philosopher, John Calvin writes this, From this passage, we may infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors, All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it. For it has come from God, out of the mouths of wicked individuals. The truth has come from God. Besides, all things are of God, and therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory? everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose in another place he writes if we reflect that the spirit of god is the only fountain of truth we will be careful as we would avoid offering insult to him not to reject or condemn truth wherever it appears in despising the gifts we insult the giver he's not being subtle there And, and we tend to kind of put ourselves in this echo chamber, as you've all learned this last year, where we only hear and receive from a certain uh, angle. We receive the news or the truth from a certain angle. And I would say this is pushing back on that. In our vigilant attempts to examine everything, let us be quick to find and treasure whatever is excellent. And so this implies that we shouldn't only withhold approval until we have examined something, but we should also withhold rejection until properly examined. Don't just simply look at the source and say, oh, I don't agree with him or her or that school. Therefore, I don't don't study it. I don't consider it. You're doing the same thing. So whether we're reading, listening, or watching teachers, we ought to look for the truth by which we might glorify God, trust God's word, examine everything else on all sides. And then girded with that proper balance of discerning love and a proper appreciation for what is excellent, we're in a position then to accrue in righteous fruit. Again, I I did choose accrue there because it begins with an A, um, and I was trying to be consistent here. But the word actually does make sense, right? It's, we're coming, the, the verse says to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so I use the word accrue. Uh, Mateer says this, when Paul depicts people who are filled, he is pointing to a future completion of a process. a, A fruitful orchard or vineyard does not happen in one day. It's the result of a long process of planting, watering, pruning, fertilizing. And so in this setting, the daily task of obedience remains hard but not fruitless. We are often neglectful, frequently failing, ever inadequate, yet the end is secure for God is at work. And so harvest time arrives upon Christ's return and the display of fruit then produced in us by his spirit magnifies the praise and glory of God received on that day. But it's, it's an ongoing work, right, that builds us toward that day. It is a work that he began and he is continuing to fulfill. So yes, he's looking here in this prayer at that end process that you will be filled with fruit on that day. But we recognize that it is something that is taking place even now in those who are believers, right? The righteousness that comes from God is the origin from which moral fruit is produced through Christ. Now, again, I I want to be careful that, I, that I'm consistent with what Scripture is teaching here and not just taking things from culture and trying to trying to apply it but this idea of righteousness is an important one that we be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus the the word in the Greek has to do with justice doing what God requires acting justly Justice has been twisted to refer to today to an equality in outcome. And so what, what Paul is saying here is pursue righteous fruit, not worldly justice. And and so I think we need to correct some of the redefinitions that have taken place. In social just, justice is not biblical justice a book I'd recommend you read. Scott David Allen points out why it's important to define terms. He says this, all cultural change begins with language change. Changes in language, whether it be new words or new definitions to old words, this new language can usually be traced to powerful leaders who may have lived hundreds of years before. And so then Allen defines social justice in this way. He says it's just deconstructing Traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of equality of outcome. That's, there's a lot packed into that definition, and almost all of it is inconsistent with Scripture. And so if you need to understand more fully this concept, I would encourage you to read that book, and study it. The, the author was actually he kind of come, moved away from that uh, deconstruction postmodernist approach to mercy ministry that he was um, steeped in. Uh, but we need to guard against these worldly philosophies, as Colossians two eight says. Rather than opening wide our doors to them, right? Many in the church have taken their instructions. From the culture, rather than scripture, as we said in the opening. So again, in our haste to guard against and to correct these errors of others, let us not forsake what what is obvious, obviously the point here. Not to forsake the pursuit of righteous fruit altogether. To to just throw out the baby with the bathwater. While social justice is bad, I'm just I'm not even going to worry about justice. I'm just going to focus on love uh, for God and, and the saints, building one another up. Belgic Confession of Faith says this, we, we believe that this true faith, being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, doth regenerate, regenerate and make him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man." says justifying faith is crucial it's critical and it inevitably will result in fruit the internal fruit of the spirit spoken of in galatians 5 flow outward in the fruit of righteousness that paul speaks of here and so the later will not occur without the former and neither internal nor external fruit will be produced if we are not abiding in Christ, as Jesus says in John 15, verse 5. So pursue righteous fruit, but retain the biblical meaning. Don't be misled by redefinitions. The only way to bear righteous fruit is to be planted in good soil and watered by good instruction. And so we must guard against the poison of worldly philosophy if we want to produce anything other than bitter fruit. The bitter fruit of cancel culture, presumptuous entitlement, crippling dependency. Our pursuit of biblical righteousness or justice must be rooted in the truth, not vague perceptions of injustice. And then that genuine and lasting fruit will be produced as we correct the influence of that satanic deception with discipleship in a Christian worldview. We'll begin to assess the needs of our neighbors with the compassion of Christ and speak the truth in love. And I'd say here, Paul's prayer maybe could be summarized in this way. Honor God, not man, with the fruit that you produce. And so this is the right response to Christ's redeeming love. The fruit that we produce is the result of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Notice there in that, ver- in that prayer, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The righteousness that we produce must be rooted in the truth that God reveals and then produced through Christ, and it's through His Spirit. And so that righteousness is then received by faith in Christ. Look, go ahead, jump ahead to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 9. I just want you to see this same reference here. To be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this righteousness that is expressed here this prayer of paul that you would produce a fruit of righteousness is not a worldly righteousness it's not a righteousness that you manufacture that you figure out on your own it's a righteousness that comes by faith through faith in christ it's a righteousness from god that depends on faith and so restoration in christ when we place our faith in christ and we are restored to a right standing with god we have peace with god all of that leads to transformation through christ christ begins to do a work in and through us and that is bound to have an impact upon the relationships that you interact with throughout the week if god is doing a work in and through you And he can be using you to do a work in culture. I don't want to overstate the goal or the responsibility of transforming culture. I think that oftentimes has been overstated. But as Christ is doing a work in believers, it's going to have an impact upon those around you. And we should expect that and we should look forward to that and we should remain standing firm on his promises to do that work in us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can approach culture, approach our neighbors, approach individuals who, in, who we interact with with a posture of humility, recognizing that we are submitting to your authority but in boldness, recognizing that your truth has been revealed. That we don't need to to cower to the ways of the world. That even if we face persecution and death, that your promises remain true and your blessings to bring us all the way home are secure. Lord, we thank you that you do preserve your church. You preserve your saints. And as we face an increasingly hostile culture, Lord, help us to fall before you, before that throne of grace, to depend upon you, to give us the strength that we need. To surround ourselves with a community of saints that would Build us up and encourage us because we will be facing trials and temptation throughout the week. We need one another's support. We need to be reminded of your covenant faithfulness to us. So, Lord, even as we consider Paul's prayer for the saints in Philippi, we adopt that as a prayer for ourselves, Lord. We ask that you would do make these truths evident in our t- church. our midst that we would abound in love that is discerning that is filled with knowledge that examines everything and approves what is excellent and lord that that we would truly bear the fruit of righteousness as we are rooted in the gospel truth that Christ is at work in and through us, transforming us from one degree of glory to the next until we make it all the way home. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of preparation, our, our hymn of response. I don't have another sermon prepared for you. Our hymn of response is Alas, and did my Savior bleed, hymn number 341.